Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. What's your favourite satellite? What do you mean by satellite? Do you mean spacecraft, in which case I'd say uh, Rosetta? Well, the re- uh, let me tell you the reason I ask, first of all, and that maybe sets the context. So I was on Times Radio this morning uh, because it's the anniversary of the launch of Prospero, which is the first UK-built and launched satellite. First One and only, from, actually. Uh, Woomera, was that? That's right, Woomera yeah, in Australia. In, Australia, in yeah. 1971, 28th of October 1971. And I was asked at the end of the interview, what was my favourite satellite? That's a difficult question. So, th- <laughs> thinking <laughs> quickly, think, yes. thinking quickly, I said Sputnik, yeah. the first satellite. Yeah, that, That's probably the coolest looking. Yeah. Very and 1950s. Then I said, and then I said, patriotically, I said Aerial. Prospero. Oh, Prospero, Prospero, yeah, so, yeah, Prospero okay. as well. So, uh, that's why I asked. And I I think when we're talking about satellites, we're really thinking about satellites of something. So it could be a satellite around the Earth. I mean, the moon. You could well, say the moon is your favourite satellite. Rosetta did go around a comet. Did it orbit? Was it a satellite yeah, yeah. of a comet? Yeah, well, well, it went... It- well, well, it's not anymore. <laughs> okay. Oh, I see. It's well, got to be sort of permanently fixed. I would say so. You could you could say the the moon is a satellite. You could say the moon is your favourite satellite. Oh, I see. Okay. For example, okay. um, we'll come on to. So we've had quite a lot of response so to this Hubble. on Twitter. I could have you Hubble. could have Hubble. Oh, okay. Interesting choice. Okay. You could have Hubble. We'll come back to this later All on. Right. Okay. Well, this time in Space Boffins, we are talking moon trees. And I actually get to see one, which is very exciting. Plus, we chat to the woman who took the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, to Mars. Her Excellency Sarah bint Yusuf Al-Amiri, chair of the UAE Space Agency. And how big is space, the art installation that puts everything into perspective. Now, we haven't had one of these for a while on Space Boffins. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Launch commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff with Apollo 14. Three minutes past the hour. The tower is clear. Houston is controlling. It's not now. 
On board Apollo 14, Alan Shepard, Ed Mitchell and Command Module Pilot Stuart Rooser. It was the third manned mission to land on the moon, the first after the disastrous Apollo 13. But it wasn't without its drama. Because of a problem with the latching mechanism, Rooser had to make nearly six attempts to successfully dock with the lunar lander. The astronauts returned with 43 kilos of rocks and soil, but the mission has another enjoyable during legacy moon trees trees around the world planted from seeds carried by rusa during the mission and i'm delighted to say we're joined by stuart rusa's daughter rosemary who is president of the moon tree foundation hi rosemary hi richard hi sue hi there that must have been lovely listening to your the mission again with your father on board. <laughs> I tell you, every time I hear a Saturn V launch, uh, our C video of it, I still get all excited with goosebumps all over again because I was there, obviously, for my father's launch and just to feel it and hear it and see the fire and the flames and the smoke and the it just uh, was an amazing, amazing launch. And uh, so I get excited every time I hear it. And just knowing that my father was on top uh, was uh, pretty exciting. Uh, and this is the mission after Apollo 13. Was there, did they, did, you know, you, I, I'm such a fan of the Apollo 13 movie. And you must have known the the family i mean was was there extra pressure was there extra management of the way that you were all sort of treated after that well people don't realize the apollo astronaut corps was quite small you know we only had 24 men go to the moon uh 12 that walked on the moon and six that soloed which was uh, one of the six was my father. So he used to say he was in a smaller fraternity than the moonwalkers, but, but it was a tight knit group. Um, and everyone supported each other. Everyone knew everyone. We lived right down the street from Neil Armstrong. Uh, Charlie Duke was in our neighborhood. So it was, um, it was a very tight knit community with the goal of reaching the moon. And of course, we were in a space race, but uh, we were kind of isolated from things going on in the world at the time with the Vietnam War, uh, the civil rights movement, things like that. So, yes, it was a it was a great group. It was a, a very tight knit group. And so knew them all. And after actually people don't really realize this. My father's crew was originally slated for Apollo 13. And then due to uh, some changes, either with uh, Alan Shepard not having enough training, since he he had been off training status for a while due to an inner ear problem, our NASA hierarchy. Anyway, they wound up switching the Apollo 13 and the Apollo 14 crew, which really upset my mother more than my father. But he was just like, that's okay. I've, I've got my mission so the Apollo 14 crew had a lot of training prior to uh, the Apollo 13 flight, and my father was very instrumental in in helping them come back home because he knew the command module so well. And so uh, in the movie, they have the guy who got bumped, you know, figure out the reverse flow. But in essence, uh, my father was very instrumental in that process. Oh, Wow. 
Now, I, I want to talk about the trees because, I mean, I wrote about this for BBC Future and I called your father a real-life action hero because, I mean, <laughs> truly he was. He was a, a, a smoke jumper. Uh, one of his first jobs. Explain what a smoke jumper <laughs> is, because I mean, I think this—you know—you think being an astronaut is a pretty awesome job, but a smoke jumper is an extraordinary <laughs> profession. It is, and uh, I just always thought my father was just such a cool cat. He—he he just had a James Bond-like feel when I was around him. He's one of the less well-known astronauts, but. Um, he was just a great father and and just uh, a wonderful astronaut. But before he did get into the astronaut corps, when he was in high school, uh, well, he always loved the outdoors. He loved trees. Um, he grew up poor in Oklahoma. Uh, they didn't even have running water. Uh, but he loved the outdoors. He loved trees. He had his dog named Skippy, and they would go out and quail hunt and do things like that. So... Uh, he, he didn't, he, he used to read outdoor life and field and stream. And, and so one of his buddies said, Hey, why don't we join the forest service for the summer and, uh, become smoke jumpers. And so he said, that sounds great. So they applied and they went out West to Oregon and he absolutely loved it. And being, being a smoke jumper means that you, you, go up into the airplanes, the small airplanes, you parachute out with all the equipment you need, the picks and the shovels, uh, and they they put you, they just drop you into remote areas, and then they fight the, the fires. They build trenches and things like this to stop the fire from spreading, and this is mostly in the national forest. And then they would have to hike out sometimes, 20 or 30 miles to even find a road and then just try and work their way back to the camp. So it was, it was very isolated. Um, but my father loved, loved it. And so that's what they call a smoke jumper. They look for the, where the smoke is from the forest fires. And so from that, uh, he joined the air force after he did a few years with the forestry service. And then, quickly became a, uh, a fighter pilot and then a fighter test pilot out at Edwards. And then from Edwards was chosen to be a part of the NASA program. I told you he was a real life action, action hero. <laughs> That's extraordinary. What, what do you think it was being on the planes going out to fight forest fires that got him into flying or had he, you know, could he fly before before that? It's, it's so fascinating to me because in talking to my father over the years, he somehow just knew he wanted to be a pilot. Uh, I don't know what was in him. He didn't know any pilots. Uh, he, he just had this sense, I want to be a pilot. And people used to, he had red hair and freckles and fair skin and blue eyes and and like I said, it was very rural. It was very, it was a very poor community. And so people used to kind of just pat him on his red hair and say, well, if you make good grades in school, one day you might be able to work at an aircraft factory. And so soon he kind of just told, quit telling people that he was going to be a pilot. But in his mind, 
he just, I just think he was destined, uh, but he had no doubts of where he wanted to go. And so he studied hard in school. He made all A's. And so he took these odd jobs, like becoming a smoke jumper, and then uh, made good grades in school. And so as soon as he could, he needed two years of college uh, to enter into the Air Force program. And that's what that's what he did. It's, it's inspirational, isn't it? it? Is, <laughs> it's <yeah>. inspirational. <laughs> um, now, I mean, let's let's come on to um, his uh, career at NASA because, I mean, very unfairly, but this is what you see written a lot. The Apollo fourteen crew were, were known as the the rookie crew because mm-hmm. between them they had this. 15 minutes of space flight, uh, mm-hmm. which was from Alan Shepard's suborbital Mercury flight. But as you say, your dad was an excellent pilot. And, and I think that's why he was actually selected for, for the mission by Shepard, who who was, I mean, you know, he was a pretty fearsome individual, Shepard, wasn't he? Oh, he was. Uh, in fact, my father called him, uh, oh, fearless one. But but he was my father was actually kind of scared of Alan Shepard and initially when he was assigned to NASA if he saw Shepard walking down the hallway he would literally duck into another room or a hallway uh he Shepard had that reputation of being the icy commander or smiling owl uh but they were the precision crew, and after the near-fatal uh, events of Apollo 13, um, they were tasked with getting the Apollo program back on track, and Shepard went to them and said, we are going to be the precision crew, and in, you never quite knew how you got selected for a crew, but as it turns out, over the years, my father found out that Shepard handpicked my father because he was known as a great stick and rudder man. And he had great eye-hand coordination, as I talked about when he was a child. He would he would go hunting a lot. He was a very good shot. Um, he used to play marbles on the playground. His vision was 2015. So anyway, he had great reflexes, great eyesight. And Shepard later said, I just knew I wanted to get home. And Stu Russo was the man to get me home. Well, that's a compliment uh, (laughs) in itself, isn't it? And and my father also talked about a story because they they had their T-38s. You know, NASA gave them their own jet and one... One day, flying back from the Cape to Houston, because the families lived in Houston, Texas, but, you know, they trained and flew the rockets from Cape Kennedy. But on one flight back home, uh, they were doing formation. And so Shepard was in the lead, and my father was behind. And and my father said, man, Shepard was just all over the skies. And so when they landed, uh, my father said, Al, that's a that was a pretty rough flight there. You know, you're a tough lead. And he said, sounds like a personal problem, Stu, uh, and just walked away. But in essence, I think Shepard was testing my father's skills, uh, unbeknownst to my father. And obviously he passed. And so, yeah, they were a rookie crew. My father was the only astronaut to have not served on a backup crew before being selected to a prime crew. And when Shepard called him into the office uh, with Ed Mitchell, who knew so much about computers uh, and was also a naval aviator, uh, when he said, 
to both uh, Ed, when to my father and to Ed, hey, you want to fly on Apollo, you know, on Apollo mission with me? My father kind of said, did you say prime crew? So uh, it it just all kind of happened where my father kind of was on a fast track and Shepard saw it and wanted him on his crew. So what made your father, Stuart, decide to carry seeds and seeds of a of a tree to the moon and back? So the Apollo astronauts were allowed to carry some personal items with them in uh, a bag called a PPK, personal preference kit. And so each astronaut was selecting various things or they would carry something for someone, like he took my mother's wedding ring and some other memorabilia. But when they were selecting some things to take with them, the Forest Service approached them and said, hey, since you were a smoke jumper, would you consider carrying some tree seeds uh, with you? And he said, that sounds like a great idea. So they they made a little canister and they picked five different varieties of seeds. They had to be quite small, so not anything, a large seed like an oak or something like that. So they wind up picking something that represented trees all throughout the United States. So for out west, they chose the redwood and the Douglas fir. For the south, they chose the loblolly pine and the sycamore and the sweet gum. So those were the five different variety of tree seeds that they took with them. And so he just put it in the canister and and put it in his PPK and and off they went to the moon with them. So what happened then when those seeds came back to Earth? Were they all distributed or given back to the forestry service and then planted? It was so fascinating back then because they really weren't sure if there was some kind of space germ or um, they used to joke about lunar ticks. Uh, You know, if there was something that might just wipe out humanity back then. They really didn't know. So the seeds were kept in quarantine, just like the astronauts were uh, for a while. And then NASA started to germinate them. And then they did turn them over to the Forest Service to kind of distribute. But not too far from me is where they did a test to see if they would grow like normal trees. They really didn't know the effects of radiation or deep space or, you know, the harshness of of deep space, if there would be an effect on the seeds or if they would even grow at all. But they did turn out to grow and they've since found out they just grow like normal trees. It, there wasn't, I have to say, much science in this, was it? Was there? It wasn't really thought through as a scientific experiment because we know now on the, you know, the International Space Station there are plenty of plants grown on the space station. There have been missions growing plants on the space shuttle. But this was really, it was almost like an afterthought because it, it wasn't like a, a proper experiment with a control or anything like that. Correct. It, it was initially just done to an ode to the Forest Service, although they they had a a play in it. Uh, But it was not really an official NASA experiment, although NASA knew about it and was initially involved with it. Now, as 
As president of the Moon Tree Foundation, do you have a, a sort of national map with an X marks the spot for every moon tree that you know is in the States or are there still some that you're not quite sure whereabout they are? Well, most of the moon trees were distributed and planted during the bicentennial of the United States in um, 1976. So a lot of them went to state capitals, universities, botanical gardens, and they did mark them with a little uh, marker at times. Some they they didn't. Uh, I remember going up and planting a tree at the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, and then some my father planted in person, uh, like where we lived in Mississippi. So I I've gotten um, inquiries from people like, "Do you know where a moon tree is?" Or I think I've discovered one. I've even had people say they take their family vacations where they go in search of moon trees. So there's a little bit of a mystery about the moon trees and where they are. Uh, there's a gentleman at NASA named Dave Williams who decided as a hobby at first just to try and track down and catalog where the moon trees are. But there are there are some that are just out there and marked with a tiny plaque. But what has been happening over the years uh, after all this time is sometimes uh, they have disease or uh, they get cut down or people just don't know or they've just died. And so out of the 450 to 500 seeds that went to the moon and were germinated, I found out there were only about 70 or so of the original moon trees surviving to this day. And so I just thought we cannot let, let this beautiful living legacy of the Apollo program just fade off into history. So we started the Moon Tree Foundation during the 40th anniversary of Apollo 14 in 2011, but really kicked it off uh, with the 50th and so we go around and plant second generation moon trees in ceremonies. Uh, we're about to head off on Monday and plant one in Nebraska and at an arboretum, arboretum there. And, and so these, these ceremonies are just so beautiful. And so they're carrying on this legacy of the Apollo program. And we like to inspire and, and unite people just like Neil Armstrong united the world when he landed on the moon in 1969. They're really just magical, magical moments. And we try and tailor each moon tree planning to what their interests are and where we are. And so I, it just grows, gives me just great joy of planting these trees to promote conservation. Uh, the children all get involved. We like to have as many people, uh, you know, put dirt on the tree, you know, in the hole. And, and so they're just, they're just really, really neat. And I just kind of stumbled upon it. Like I said, when I found out that these trees were just kind of fading away. Uh, so, so that's what our mission is at the Moon Tree Foundation. Well, that's wonderful. And it's, as you say, it's a lovely legacy, not just of the Apollo program, but also of, 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 of something your astronaut father did. And it, and it turns out that there is a second generation 
moon tree here in the UK. In fact, it's not very far from Space Boffins HQ as it happens in Leafy, Hertfordshire. It belongs to Paul McMahon, a retired space engineer. So I went to see it. Right then, let's go through out into Paul's garden where the rain is starting to go. You've got an umbrella there, Paul. Thank you. And very aptly, it's for a man who's been involved in space for most of his career, your umbrella has the planets inside it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, before we get to the bottom of your garden, just sum up your career because it's pretty impressive. So I spent uh, 43 years working in the space industry based at Stevenage. When I started in August 1975, it was Hawker Siddeley Dynamics. Uh, it went through British Aerospace, Metro Marconi Space, uh, Astrium, EADS Astrium, and then Airbus Defence and Space when I retired in uh, December 2018. In that time, I worked on over 40 projects. I started with Ariane. I was involved with the launch site out, the ELA-1 launch site out in French Guiana. Uh, and I was there when LO-2 was launched in May. LO-2? The second Ariane launch in May 1980, which unfortunately was destroyed a minute and 13 seconds after liftoff. <laughs> Eventful. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I worked on uh, Space Lab, which flew on the shuttle, uh, Intelsat 6, Intelsat 5, Metop. I also supplied the reaction wheels for Soho, XMM and Integral and Rosetta, which I regard as the peak of my career. Um, and then I became part of the ExoMars rover team. I was deputy project manager for a while. Uh, but and while this is the Mars Yard in, in Stevenage, in, yeah. the Airbus Mars Yard. Yes, one of my responsibilities on that programme involved building the, uh, the Mars Yard and also the sterile clean room, which was used to build the, uh, <laughs> used to build the Mars rover um, <laughs> after I retired, unfortunately. But the Mars rover is currently, it should be on the surface of Mars now but unfortunately the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia has uh, messed things up. Uh, I was also involved with Beagle 2 because uh, I was part of the mechanisms department and uh, I was involved with the clamp band which did work, the main hinge which did work, three of the solar panel hinges which did work but unfortunately the fourth one didn't. Uh, so yeah. Don't bring back those memories, <laughs> those memories of waiting for the signal to, yeah. to come back. An extraordinary career Paul and it's so apt then that at the bottom of your garden you have a tree that's about I would guess four to five meters tall, yeah. young in tree terms yeah. because its trunk is only I could probably get my hand around it, so it gives you an idea of the size. But this tree has an incredible sort of history. What made you want to get hold of a seed that would enable you to have a moon tree, other than the fact that we know you love space? I'm a child of the 60s. You know, all through my my youth uh, was the Apollo programme and the the landing on the moon in in, uh, July 69. You know, it was a monumental event. But uh, you wind forward to 2006 and I came across an article on the BBC website which mentioned these moon trees and I was intrigued and I followed it up. I traced down the person that was mentioned in it. She sent me some seeds from, uh, uh, from, from the middle of the States uh, and uh, I got somebody who lives in the village who used to work at uh, Rothamsted uh, Research Establishment in nearby Harpenden to, 
to uh, Germinate. Worldwide famous now oh, for its yes. plant research. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. To germinate those seeds, uh, and I had four saplings on my patio for a couple of months. Two died. Uh, one I planted here and one I planted in the local school, but the local school unfortunately died as well because it wasn't looked after. Sorry, so, that's so typical, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> school kids, don't leave school kids in charge of a tree yeah. or teachers. I, 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 it, I, it wasn't the school kids, it was the, the headmistress. Yes. She, she just wasn't interested. <laughs> um, so, um, but, you know, it's, we, we did have a leylandi here, which we cut down because it was sucking too much soil out of the uh, moisture oh, out of the ground. Um, and uh, And it's grown away so it's brilliant to see and to know that you've got this bit of of history here have you had to do much upkeep bearing in mind i know nothing about gardening i I would have just thought you got a tree in there you've said you've removed a equivalent of a conifer i think a (laughs) leylander is yeah yeah. have you had to treat it differently no no all i do is water it I'm not a gardener. I, I mow the you're lawn. A space, you're a space fan. <laughs> I mow the lawn, I trim the hedge. That's all I do. And I, I have a disagreement with my wife about this nice smoky tree. She likes to cut it back in the January. And it's the only thing with any colour in the garden. I like the fact that you called it smoky tree and not like smokus trius or something. You know, yeah. so, says, says it all. Now, I'm also joined by... The, the great thing is, is we're, we're all under our umbrellas beneath the rather sparse panoply of, of our small sycamore tree and it's, it is an American sycamore isn't yeah the Americans right? call it a sycamore the rest of the world call it a plane tree and that's P-L-A-N-E yes, yes. so yeah a, there is a space plane joke in there yeah, somewhere yeah, isn't there, there is, but, we, yes. but we won't do it we're trying to keep dry under, under our umbrellas what's the um, Dr Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society uh, what's the connection with your society and this fabulous moon tree. So, so our vice president, uh, who was then uh, Professor Steve Miller from uh, UCL, he put out a call for... Well, we put out a call on the back of some questions he'd asked of Gardener's Questions Time, because we had our 200th anniversary in 2020. Not great t- timing, I have to say. We've had quite a lot of delayed events afterwards, but it's, it's gone well. Uh, and one of those questions was, well, what could we plant for our 200th anniversary and one of the panelists christine walton came back with the idea that we could grow moon trees because she knew there were seeds dotted around the world and that some of these had arrived in the uk now we put out a call for those we didn't get any solid leads we had quite a few people writing to this we investigated one in the island man for example but we couldn't get any verified first generation moon trees so we got in touch with uh, paul because uh, steve had seen him commenting on an online forum about unusual trees and what could be more unusual than a moon tree so this tree is a, a tree that was grown from a seed from one of the first generation moon trees and therefore you can describe it as a second generation one effectively uh, identical to some of those that are growing in the u.s and elsewhere there are they're almost all in the u.s i think there's a few in brazil as well and uh, despite the 15 seeds that allegedly came to the uk as far as we know there are no first generation ones here at all paul in terms of your second generation moon tree do you know of any others no not at all that must feel quite cool, you know, for a, for a man with your background and, and yeah, space no, history. I, I'm very proud of having this tree here. And, and whenever any of my colleagues come round or something, you know, I, I tell them about it. Uh, and I have promised some cuttings to a few people who... Uh, there's a guy who used to work down at Bristol who actually is the father-in-law of a girl in the close. And uh, he wants a cutting so he can put it in a local school and, and, and make the kids aware of, uh, of the history of the Apollo programme and, and also the moon trees, you know. 
and from a sort of space point of view, I mean, there have been quite a few seeds that have already been grown on the space station. You had astronaut Scott Kelly sort of bring back a bunch of flowers back to life that had got a fungal infection. I can understand the research that goes on the space station by taking seeds there because you need to know, well, can we grow and provide for human spaceflight? But is growing seeds that have been in space back, is is there it's just a bit of fun, maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, look, I guess you can argue that you take them to space. If you imagine if you were building that hypothetical colony on Mars, you want to know what the journey through space is going to do to them and how they recover or how they're affected at all when they're grown back on a planet, you know, whether, whether that's the Earth or ideally in the future, some other place like the Moon and Mars. So I think it's reasonable to do that test. And the other example, the perfect uh, the pun example, is Tim Peake taking rocket seeds to the space station, growing those on Earth. And it, essentially it seemed to be fine, a bit less vigorous than they might have been, probably down to the length of time they were there. They were there a lot longer than the seeds that went round the Moon, which would have been, what, about a week? Whereas on the space station, six months or so, the radiation you get there is a lot more than you do on Earth, even if you're inside the space station so therefore they didn't do as well and and you know it'll be interesting if we take seeds to a place like mars which i guess if you ever want to have a base there or even if it's only a, a small scientific base if that ever happens then you'll need it's a good idea to grow some food in situ it's a consideration you know do you need to protect them very well on that voyage or is it just going to be okay if they're there with the astronauts too and you need to protect the astronauts too obviously it's a, a pretty harsh environment Well, I love the fact that the sun has suddenly come out. We can put our umbrellas down and actually gaze up through the leaves of the moon tree and look out into the sky and and beyond and think about where it all came from. It's, uh, it's, It's great. Can I take one of these leaves? Yeah, oh, yes. I'm going to take a leaf. You've got to. Oh, definitely, oh, definitely off the ground. That's a good idea. Yeah. Paul McMahon and Dr Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, you've got this leaf from the tree. Yeah. What are you going to do with the leaf from the tree? Quite a sizable leaf. This is an American sycamore, which is it's a plain tree, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I unfortunately forgot to press it between I didn't have when I was younger I would you know have blotting paper and press wildflowers and do all that sort of stuff and then label them and put them into scrapbooks so I know exactly what I'm doing and I totally forgot and then I suddenly discovered this morning this um, curled up dried leaf in my rucksack so I've got in touch with Paul and said I'm an idiot. I, I forgot to do all that prep. Um, can I have another leaf, please? And he said, get round quick, because there aren't that many on the tree now. <laughs> you know, the sort of, you know, as it's obviously autumn, um, they're, they're blowing off quite rapidly. So I'm going to get another leaf and this time properly press it and put it between a book, you know, a big book or something. So that, because what I thought I would do, I, you know, during the pandemic... You've, you've given this a lot of thought. I have. Yeah. During the pandemic, as you, I'm sure you recall, I got obsessed with lots of different things. And one of them at one stage was non-stop painting of planets and moons, including I painted our patio wall. I turned it into a sort of planetary landscape. So I thought what I might do is do paint an acrylic background of a moon um, and and make it a yellow tinged moon because the moon can look silvery or blue or you know if you know different colours at different times of the night etc. So I'm going to do a yellowish moon with the moon tree leaf sort of 
on top of it. And I just thought that would be cool. Lovely. That sounds you yeah, don't sound really <laughs> Well, Rosemary, Rosemary likes the sound. Rosemary of it, does I'm like sure. the sound. Of it. Yeah, thanks for your thanks for your patience, Rosemary. Um, no, it gives um, me ideas. I'm just not an okay. an artist. But I was going to say, Sue, um, when we during the Apollo 14 mission, when we were on Earth looking at the moon, it was a three quarters moon. So we used to call it a Framara moon because that's the landing site of Apollo 14. So you might. Do it a three quarters moon oh, and ode to Apollo a great fourteen. Idea. I will. I will. That I love that. Yeah, Sue is literally. I'm taking writing notes. that down. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's that's great. Now, um, Rosemary, uh, before we go, um, you you've just come back from seeing the, one of the original moon trees that you helped your father plant. Yes. So we just got back from Startville, Mississippi. Uh, where the campus of Mississippi State University is. And we have family outside of Startville. Startville's very near and dear to us. It's it's where I was born and it's where my parents were married. And so we were up visiting family. And, and so my father obtained one of the original moon trees, an American sycamore. And so we went out and planted that on the campus of MSU to inspire others. So we just got back a few days ago uh, from visiting that tree. And Sue, I grabbed a few leaves myself (laughs) and grabbed some pods as well because they're starting to drop. And so I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but we might come over to the UK and Plant one of these, uh, maybe. Oh, next great idea! To that tree and, or I, and I'm else. sure Paul, <laughs> being a retired space engineer and and all the amazing missions he's worked on, I'm sure he would absolutely love to show you um, his in his back garden. Uh, and Rosemary, just a, a final question. Uh, you mentioned this word yourself as well, and it's it's just really interesting right now. Heading back to the moon, we've got the Artemis mission finally coming up. Will be humans. There'll be a woman on the moon in a couple of years, two, three years time. This is really, you know, it's it's a perfect time for this legacy, isn't it, of of Apollo. And these are the living legacy of Apollo when sadly we, we've lost, you know, a great number of the well, Apollo astronauts. Well, you astronauts. could say Rosemary is a living legacy <laughs> of Apollo. <laughs> uh, yes, it is an extremely exciting time and I am happy that a woman's going to be stepping foot on the moon. I got to say, I just had a a really great father, not only, you know, a hero and a wonderful husband, but, but he was a very good father. And, um, he taught me how to fly when I was 16. I got my license when I was 18. So, so he was a good, a, a good daddy. I have to just throw that in there, but, but he, he, always thought I could do anything um, and that the space program should continue. Uh, He was very disappointed when they did stop the Apollo program, but I know he would be very, very excited uh, of this new generation that's going to grow up with landing on the moon. And something that is very exciting, I've been working with NASA, uh, we, there are going to be new moon tree seeds or tree seeds on the Artemis mission. And in Ode to My Father, they have chosen the same 
five variety of tree seeds. They're not direct descendants of moon trees, but they are the same varieties of the redwood, uh, Douglas fir, sweet gum, American sycamore, and the loblolly pine. So I'll be working with them on planting Artemis moon trees as well as our Apollo legacy moon trees. That's fantastic. Well, Rosemary Rousset, thank you very much for joining us on Space Boffins. Well, thank you so kindly for having me. And I hope to, we'll be planting moon trees in the UK and around the world. That's our goal. Uh, by the way, we're going to have an Apollo 17 special in December. So as well as the December podcast, mm-hmm. my plan is to just put out the full interview I did with, with Gene Cernan. Oh, great. Which was what we think is his last broadcast interview before mm-hmm. he sadly died um, it's a fascinating conversation he talks about his spacewalk from hell on gemini uh, he talks about how he came up with the last words on the moon it's great so i'm just gonna i'll tidy it up a little bit um mm. and just put it up as a and, as a bonus uh, podcast and uh, that's a part of that transcription you're going to is is in um, the Year in Space book as well, isn't it? Yes, the Year in Space, available from all good and some bad <laughs> booksellers as well. So it's the Year in Space from the Supermassive podcast. Uh, there's a transcription of quite a, a, a chunk of that of that interview in there mm-hmm. if you want to read uh, about uh, Gene Cernan and that last Apollo mission to the moon. There's also a fantastic article about Artemis. There is the, that I wrote, and damn it, I didn't know about these seeds. <laughs> I would have put that in, but they give that's maybe next year. That's or next the, year's book, yeah. So um, it's re- we're really proud of it. It's yeah. a really lovely book. Uh, the Year in Space from Supermassive Podcast, available everywhere. Great um, Christmas present. It is very reasonably priced. It, it does look <laughs> lovely. Um, please buy it. Please write nice reviews of it so other people buy it, and then hopefully we get to do it again next year as well. Good. Still to come this month, the space ambitions of the United Arab Emirates and how to feel really, really, really small. Do get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter or email us podcast at spaceboffins.com. And if you like the podcast, do tell people about us and write nice reviews. Uh, if, If you don't, then don't. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Now, the Abu Dhabi space debate is taking place on the 5th and 6th of December. And it's been organised by the United Arab Emirates or UAE Space Agency to discuss international collaborations. And when it comes to space, the UAE isn't short of ambition. Its collaborations in space have already included partners in Europe, South Korea, the US and Japan. Now, the chair of the Abu Dhabi Space Debate Committee is Her Excellency Sarah Bint Yusuf Al-Amiri, Minister of State for Public Education and Advanced Technology and chair of the UAE Space Agency. Sarah is also known as the woman who took the UAE to Mars, because in 2020, she was the science lead of its Al-Amal mission, which translates as hope. It was the first mission to Mars by an Arab country and in February last year it successfully entered the Martian atmosphere. So when we spoke to Sarah about the UAE's space ambitions we began by getting an update on HOPE since its arrival at the Red Planet. The mission has been quite exciting being a first-time mission and, and being able to experience what it means to rewrite scientific theories, to prove other theories and to discover new 
artifacts uh, on Mars's atmosphere. The spacecraft is operating nominally. It's actually quite exceptional considering it's a completely new design for a spacecraft around Mars. And the science that's coming from there, apart from our own science team using it, just the usability of it globally to scientists around the world has been great. And and it goes back to one of the primary objectives that we put on the mission, which was ensuring that the science is usable, it's tangential to other science, and therefore it is required by scientists to be in orbit around Mars. The science community and in its inclusivity in terms of um, sharing of data is quite important in furthering scientific discovery. You've also done a number of um, first, like these, these images of Martian dust storms that had, had not been seen before and, and auroras on the sort of night side of Mars, which engages a sort of whole new level of, of people as well. Absolutely. And, and it was interesting for us, it's that type of science, apart from the dust storms, but the whole aurora science that has come to be was something that we did not plan for. We didn't know that our spacecraft would be able to image those using our EMU's ultraviolet spectrometer. That on top of the breakthrough science that we're going to get from dust storms and knowing the interaction of the dust storms and the role the dust storms play in the loss of Mars's atmosphere is uh, something that is of high importance for us. And part of the exciting part of, of delivering a mission that does novel science. I mean, I find it remarkable that you've already got a spacecraft around Mars. You've had an astronaut on the space station. You've got another one next year. It's like your space program is on is, is supercharged. I was going to say come, steroids. <laughs> it's come from nowhere and it's suddenly doing all this. And I suppose I have a fundamental question. Why? Why space? Why did you go down this route? Well, when the decision was made in 2006 to enter into the space sector, uh, it was to develop science and technology capabilities. And there's not many sectors that you're able to take a project, develop several engineering fields, capabilities, design and develop a complex technological system, be able to take it all the way through to operations, uh, and then use it either for commercial utilization or for scientific means. And what that does is it creates an amazing ripple effect and trigger for one, uh, moving forward your research and development ecosystem, also developing capabilities and understanding on how to conduct high-risk business, which technology is most of the time, and be able to better understand how design and development of those complex systems and addressing the needs for implementation and adoption of technology also comes to be. So that was the, the, the first objective. And I think throughout the, the programs, we've been able to achieve that. Now, why is space still important for the UAE? It's because of the relevancy of the space economy globally. So it's moved from a trigger to develop science and technology capabilities to today being a, an industrial sector with positive economical impact. So we're moving from di- indirect economical impact in terms of capability development and capacity development to direct economic impact as we are now developing our new programs, ensuring that we're transferring know-how and capabilities to the private sector and also building their heritage and experience. They're economic arguments and, and technical arguments, but why, why have astronauts as well? It completes uh, in terms of pushing the edge with regards to science, and it creates also the aspirational ripple effect. Now, your current astronaut crew 
of four includes a woman. And and when I visited the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre in Dubai in um, 2019, I was pleasantly surprised to see how many women were involved and also how young a lot of the the team are. And you yourself, you're only in your 30s. Is this sort of challenging expectations, do you think, of particularly Muslim women, especially from a sort of Western point of view? Is this something that has more of an impact from your point of view away from your region, more global? Yes, it, it's it's quite surprising for us when people are surprised when they see us because mm-hmm. it's not it's not odd, um, yeah. especially just with the number of women that we have graduating college, with the number of women uh, that we have entering into STEM fields and then moving on to careers in that field, and it's quite um, humbling to know that there is a global challenge on STEM that we've necessarily not faced. I've necessarily not faced in my career here. And it's a great understanding on how we should continue pushing inclusivity globally. It's good to challenge those expectations. And you've got a huge, ambitious program. You've launched a space economic zone to support startup companies, planning a a, a mission in 2028 that's the Mars asteroid belt and Venus. As a space agency, originally it was more sort of Earth observation like Rich was saying, supercharged earlier, it's been quite a, a rapid change. Was that change or sort of journey, was it challenging at all? Or, or did you just find it's all space, it's, it's, it's there, we'll just get on and do it? Well, space is challenging. <laughs> a day doesn't go by without us realizing that, especially with uh, designing and developing any form of spacecrafts. Was it a big jump going from Earth observation to planetary exploration? Yes, it was purposely selected because of that big jump, because you're able to build capacity at a much faster rate and also incur some risk in the process. So it's not something that was easy to do. The Emirates Mars mission was at the edge of what we can deliver, considering the budget that we had. It's never been done in terms of building a spacecraft with impactful science for the first time in partnership with a different na- with another nation and with a completely new design that neither entities that were involved in its development process, both international and also in the UAE, ever did that form of design. How does that design differ from the orbiters that we're more familiar with, particularly the NASA ones, for instance, around Mars? First transformation that we did is the way, in the way that we managed and provided oversight on the project. So um, we looked at all the different policies and procedures that governs how you design, develop, test, analyze, (laughs) review such programs, and kept those that were relevant from a technical perspective and removed those that that we had no reason to believe were there for technical reasons. Uh, So that's one way of cutting costs and, and also cutting down time. The second was looking at uh, existing parts that have been used around Mars. So you're, that, that means that you're cutting down testing time, but still knowing what you're receiving in terms of a product. And then the last is we looked at every different part of the spacecraft and we asked ourselves, do we need to have two of each part for redundancy, just in case one of them fails? Or is the delta on how well it's going to work feasible enough for us not to have an extra part 
and be able to go single string, for example. So it's these different nuances between different mechanisms of management on top of different mechanisms of what you would call call your quote-unquote normal way of designing spacecrafts that was able to uh, deliver us the spacecraft that we had. And we continue on this methodology of development on the asteroid belt mission, which, trust me, is not easy. It wasn't a comfortable decision to make. It was a challenging decision to make to move on to the asteroid belt mission. But it's paying off in terms of capability development, and it's paying off on, on in terms of pushing the envelope further from a science perspective globally. Your thinking is to complement other missions and what other nations are, are doing, work with other nations. I mean, how does this fit into international partnerships? How, which countries are you choosing to work with? Which, which ones maybe not? So we've kept on just for continuation purposes, because we are building largely on the platform we have from the Emirates Mars mission. So to continue on that, we continue to work with LASP out of the University of Colorado in Boulder. And at the same time, what we're doing for instrumentation and for science is consulting with scientists from around the world. And at the same time, also opening up um, chances for other nations to be involved um, in parts of the science of this mission. So uh, it's it's going wider than what the Emirates mission was in terms of partnerships. And we'll, we'll continue to uh, move forward with that to be able to deliver on our science objectives. So it is an international uh, mission and it does play on areas of science that haven't been done before and also technology demonstration. So we're also testing different types of technologies to be able to explore the asteroid belt either and also near Earth uh, asteroids um, in different mechanisms. And, and that's also part of the objectives of this mission. Uh, and what about your astronaut missions? Your your last um, was a partnership with, with Russia. Are you looking with the next one to maybe become you know, a full partner on the ISS with a six-month mission or partner with with NASA and, and ESA on, on Orion or maybe with, with China? I mean, you've got lots of options, I suppose. Yeah, so the, the upcoming mission is partnering up um, with a private company out of the U.S. and pushing on forward from there. In terms of the long-term plan and aspirations for that, it's still up for discussion. There is a lot of options out there. And this is, a, you know, your current sort of um, positions, both as chairwoman of the UAE Space Agency and Minister of State for Public Education and Advanced Technology. This is a sort of, you know, almost a perfect combination, isn't it, of the day jobs where one one informs the other. Do you miss, you know, working as a, as, as a scientist on, on missions or are you happy that everything's informed, everything up until now? Or do you still have that hankering to be uh, right at the coalface? It depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, I enjoy what I'm currently doing. I also enjoyed uh, being an engineer working on a space project as well. It's, It's interesting to actually see the implications, like you said, in the ripple effect across the board and how policies interact with enabling industry, uh, which I do with my advanced technology uh, purview in the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology together, coupled together with a space agency that's there to build capabilities and capacity and also deliver on these programs. Of course, education plays a role roughly everywhere. So it's really interesting in terms of uh, systems to be able to, uh, to build and work with brilliant teams across the country and also internationally. Um, on pulling a lot of our objectives through. Uh, and what about the next generation? Is this paying off in terms of the inspiration for them of, of wanting to 
to do space? I mean, is it is it galvanising young people yeah, in, in the country? Yeah, because we, as you're probably aware, you know, when um, uh, Tim Peake went up as as sort of Britain's first European space agency astronaut, it had a massive knock on effect at schools with increased interest in STEM subjects. Has that been the same since you've had your astronaut on the International Space Station? Uh, yes, absolutely. And with the arrival in 2021 to Mars, that's just been palpable and through the roof in terms of interest and engagement from the public at large. It's not only school children, it's it's the public at large at so many different levels who are quite interested. So it's had a massive societal impact above and beyond what we expected and an appreciation on the role of science and technology. And also an interesting take from where I sit right now with my colleagues and the different entities that I work with on risk-taking, appreciation on taking out calculated risks and how it could play a role in determining what your outcomes are going to be. And that then goes into being able to select the right programs and and take on more challenges to be able to reap uh, better rewards and outcomes. Her Excellency Sarah Bint Yusuf Al-Amiri, Minister of State for Public Education and Advanced Technology and Chair of the UAE Space Agency. I did really enjoy that conversation. She was lovely. Yeah, yeah. she was absolutely no, lovely. I think she yeah. was really delighted to have a break from doing serious politics and just chatting to us, actually. Yeah, no, it was really yeah, good. That's just yeah. great stuff. Anyway. And, uh, oh, I was going to say, yeah. and that meeting... Um, uh, which uh, anybody from the UK space industry listening, um, give it a go. It's uh, You could always go there or do it. I don't know. Maybe there's a, a remote thing, the Abu Dhabi space debate. They want to talk to all sorts of collaborators, industry, science agencies, private companies, 5th and 6th of December. At the beginning of the podcast, I pose the question, what's your favourite satellite? Because I was asked that on Times Radio this morning. Um, Emma, the space gardener um, on Twitter, she does the excellent podcast. Gardeners uh, of the Galaxy, galaxy. yeah. Yeah. She came up with LDEF, I had to look this up, which is the Long Duration Exposure Facility, which was launched by Shuttle Challenger in 1984 and retrieved by Columbia in 1990. And she wrote that... It carried tomato seeds into space for school kids to grow. They were up there longer than anticipated, and there was a bit of a panic. They'd grow into poisonous mutants. Oh, so so there you go. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like, that like the moon trees. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is the best, though. Matthew Cosby says the satellite Cosby. <laughs> is. There's a satellite called Cos-B, which studied uh, sources of uh, gamma rays. That's pretty cool to have, have one named after yourself, sort of. Um, and there's been some agreement between um, John Chinner, Tracy Thompson, Nick Howes and Chris Lee, and obviously myself, about Hubble. Hubble, yeah. yeah. And... Um, Alison uh, Colgrove has gone for Mars Express, so a satellite of Mars. I think that's perfectly acceptable if we're talking about uh, uh, satellites. And Simon Babadook. Now, uh, Babadook was a, a, it's a horror film, The Babadook. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know whether he's changed his... Uh, he had a little uh, scary pumpkin on his, tw- on <laughs> his right, uh, Twitter so- handle as well. Um, but I rather like this. He suggested Lou Reed's Satellite of Love, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which yeah. is great. It's Actually, a great there was song. Actually, there was a B-52 song as well, I'm sure, that 
had uh, some uh, satellite in the... There uh, is, and I can't think got, what it is. I know, I know. Yeah. It's going to drive me mad now, yeah. being well, a massive BBC You could, you could look it up between now and the end of the podcast. All right. Um, the, the, <laughs> um, the other one was uh, suggested on Times Radio this morning was Telstar, of course, which oh, has a yes. Goon Hilly connection, which we talked thing about is, last time. The thing is, you can't say Telstar without thinking... They played that. Of course, of yeah. course. Uh, in Douglas Adams' book, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, he introduces the total perspective vortex, which is a form of torture that shows the victim just how insignificant they are compared to the whole of creation. The Voyager 1 probe gave us a similar view with its pale blue dot image showing the Earth from 4 billion miles away as a tiny dot in the void. You want to experience a similar thing? Well, you can in Liverpool. Yay! Yay! Uh, astrophysicist Professor Stephen Smart and artist and children's author Oliver Jeffers have created Our Place in Space. The 10 kilometre scale model sculpture trail of the solar system is currently in Liverpool until November the 6th, then it'll be in Northern Ireland in the new year. When I spoke to Stephen, he explained the challenge of showing how big space is. Yeah, so this is a problem that many of us face in trying to communicate what, what we do when we study the universe because the dimensions and the distances between objects are so large. It's hard to explain it to people. You can you can easily give them the numbers, impressive numbers like the Earth and, and is 150 million kilometers from the sun and then scale other distances from that. But that's hard for people to grasp. Those numbers are, are, are hard to grasp and, and understand. And, and so I, we've often used light travel time, which is a useful way of explaining distances. That can be useful in the solar system, for example, saying that the Earth and the Sun are separated or light takes eight minutes to get between the, the Sun and the Earth. And then we can explain large distances in the universe in terms of millions of light years and billions of light years. But getting people to actually realize how, how big space is what the distances in, uh, are between the planets and how small the planets are in comparison to their distribution in the solar system is quite a challenge. So that's where this project came in. On that, I always get staggered by the size of the sun compared to the Earth. You know, how, how big it is. I think we're used to those those orreries of those, uh, uh, just this, you know, visualisation and fitting the whole solar system on a page or a double page spread. And it's really nothing like that. So those models are often not the scale, and even in, te- in, in textbooks uh, explaining the, the layout of the solar system, the, the drawings are often not the scale because the Earth is so much smaller than the Sun, it's hard to fit it on a, a scaled model on a single page or in a single model. So the Earth is one hundredth uh, the diameter of the Sun, uh, and Jupiter is a tenth of the diameter of the Sun. So if you've got something which is, if the Sun was a meter, um, then the Earth would be a centimeter. Um, and but these orreries, for example, the Earth, the Sun is usually a few centimeters in size, and so the Earth would be tiny. So what? That's one of the reasons why we built a model at this scale was to show the size of the Earth, for example, in comparison to something like something very large like the Sun. So just describe what you've come up with and what this actually is. Then, so this is a. In an accurate scale model of the solar system, uh, the actual scale is 591 million to one. Um, <laughs> 591 million to one, brilliant. No, we, we didn't just come up with that figure and say, that's what we want to build. Um, we, we thought, if, if we want to make a scale model, um, 
what is the size? And you, you start off with the size of the sun and think that's the big, impressive body in the solar system. What what size do we make that? And everything else must then scale from that, from the initial choice of the of the size of the sun. We, we came up with the concept of making it a big, impressive sculpture, and Oliver Jeffers, the artist, uh, designed it. And it's, it's 2.3 meters in diameter, and that sets the distance to Pluto, the outer edge of our solar system and the Kuiper belt, to be about 10 kilometers. And so we thought that was a, a scale that made sense to people, that they could appreciate the size of the sun but then but then they could walk the trail so 10 kilometers it's a long walk but you 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 can walk it or or cycle it uh you can walk past all the planets and then really get a feel for the size of the planets the distances between them um so right out to the edge of the solar system then pluto is a tiny ball bearing which is two millimeters in size at the edge sorry four millimeters in size at the at the edge of the solar system but it was that initial a decision on the scale to make it walkable, to make it a, a size that humans could could effectively feel the the, the, the size and and uh, appreciate the size, the distances between the planets as well as their sizes. I'm really pleased you've included Pluto. Was there a big debate over that? No, not at all. There was a question, but no debate. I think we had to include it. It's not. It's not officially a planet. A planet. It's a dwarf planet, but it's certainly there. <laughs> it hasn't disappeared. It's a. It's defined now as a dwarf planet. Uh, but of course, it's in the. It's in everyone's mind. If we, I think, if we had left that out, we would have had complaints. We could have then gone on to put the other dwarf planets at their distances of around somewhere between eleven and. 17 kilometers Uh, but what we decided to do was put an information plinth at the end to describe to people that this is not quite the end of the solar system pluto's here but then you make it to the kuiper belt and and there are other dwarf planets beyond that so we both thought immediately pluto had to be there and that we would give people information about the other dwarf planets beyond it now this isn't a permanent exhibition or permanent model you've had it around the country you've had it in uh, cambridge most recently now you've got it in liverpool how do you decide do you, do you where you where you map it and do you look at the you know liverpool's a, a stunning city i know it well lovely city there are places you probably wouldn't want to walk through so you have to think about this as well don't you uh yes and so we have a very uh talented team of architects who look at the local landscape and judge where the best place is to to put the sculptures. I calculate the scale, uh, or had calculated the scale. Obviously, it's set once we've defined the size of the uh, of the sun and the planets, and then it's about fitting in where their orbits will determine where they're placed, and how that will fit with the with the local landscape. And ideally, you want the inner planet. So the inner planets between Sun and Mars, it's only four hundred meters, three hundred and eighty meters. So that's quite a small area. Uh, and so the idea there is try and fit that somewhere where you get a lot of people walking past. Uh, so as they walk past, then they see the sun, a walk of 400 meters isn't very far to Mars. And immediately they get the impression that there's a lot of space in space <laughs> between the planets. The planets are small. Uh, Earth is uh, 2.5, uh, sorry, 2.2 centimeters. And Mars is just over a centimeter. But what impresses people is the distances between the uh, the planets, even just in that first 400 metres. And, and presumably when you get to Pluto, you've not just put a little four millimetre wide ball bearing somewhere on the ground. You've, it's fairly obvious when you've, when you've reached it. Yes. So I think what brings this to life is the artistic design of Oliver Jeffers and what really 
enhances this beyond making it more, much, much more than just a science project explaining what the scale of the solar system is. So Oliver, Oliver designed these very colorful, brightly colored arches uh, with neon lights, which which have the names of the planets and a big arrow pointing to where they are. Because if you you walk um, you walk ten kilometers and you're looking at a, a four millimeter ball bearing, it's not very impressive. So Oliver has had designed these these arches, and so you can see where you're walking to um, if you've got a, at certain points in the walk. And this frames the planets, focuses your attention on where they are. Uh, some of them are suspended on steel cables, but Pluto is a little colorful ball bearing painted by Oliver, uh, welded to the inside of the arch. And so Oliver's arches, he always calls it, he always says that for him, the solar system in this, this project was a framing device to get people to think about their place in on Earth and in the broader cosmos, but how we treat each other on Earth. And the arches then are a frame where the planets are and the placement of the arches then is determined by their distances, of course, with a little bit of consideration for the local landscape. Does it make you feel small? Uh, so that's exactly the feeling that we want that uh, we want people to to consider. It certainly makes uh, has made me feel quite small and insignificant, uh, even though I understand the numbers and have for many years. Just looking at it um, gives you a a feeling that's um, for me. I was surprised. I was surprised that I thought, whoa. I, I've, have I ever thought of the solar system in that way? I've had the, always had the numbers in my head. I know the scales. I, I know the distances between the planets and the dis, and then the comparative distance to the nearest star. But actually seeing it on that scale just gives you an, an emotion, maybe an unpredictable emotion. I think people will, will react in different ways. And that's what we want, people just to look at it and think about their place on the planet. People will react in different ways. But and Oliver, that was part of Oliver's reason for designing it in this way, is to just encourage people to think of our place. And as you say, the the, the idea of the pale blue dot in the distance, uh, to be able to walk to the edge of the solar system and then realize, look back towards the Earth from the edge of our solar system and realize how tiny it is. Stephen Smart, do check out the Our Place in Space trail in Liverpool if you can. Otherwise, look out for it in the new year. It, it does really look good. It's I know, a shame it's not annoying. in Liverpool. It's annoying. Yeah, because yeah. I might miss it in Liverpool. Because I, I, as you know, go go into that area reasonably uh, regularly. But uh, maybe maybe Northern Ireland then is... Uh, I've never been to see that... Um, what's that famous rock formation in Northern Ireland? Giant's Causeway. Yeah, I've never, never. Oh, it's fabulous! It's near the. Um, <laughs> it just happens to be near the Bushmills Distillery as well. Oh well, two two good reasons then. Three yeah. good reasons. I guess looking Giant's up... Causeway, Distillery, and a space exhibition. Perfect. I'm just looking up B52s and satellite. Uh, there's an album, studio album, bouncing off the bouncing satellites. Bouncing off the satellites, that's it. Cool. Studio album by the B-52s. There we go. I've got that. I've got that on the vinyl yeah, somewhere. Yeah, 1986. Yeah, super. There you go. Oh, also, as, as I was Googling things, turns out the year in space is already higher than Tim Peake's book <laughs> on Amazon. <laughs>
Oh, I'll have to tease him. <laughs> I have to tease him. I have to tease him then on social media because he's doing so well. And that's all. The, remember all those when um, the Wally Funk book came out, and whenever I saw it in a bookshop, I would take a picture of it and I would show the before, so that it'd be like Tim Peake's book and then mine. And obviously, Tim's was always given more prominence and stuff. And then I'd show another picture and I'd show that my book, and I'd put it in front of his book, and then I'd send it to him on social media. He's going to take out some sort. <laughs> A restraining order, isn't he? No, the last time I met him, he was as lovely as ever. So, so he's obviously decided not, to, <laughs> not, not, not to, not to pursue not, not that to legal pursue routes. That <laughs> yes, he knows it's a losing battle. Yeah, no. So um, that's good. Oh, and um, speaking of, you know, we mentioned earlier our the lovely year in space, the one that's doing better than mm. Tim Peake's book right now. Oh, did I mention that again? Um, on the next podcast, we will have two space scientists who are also children's book authors who write um, nonfiction and uh, books about space. So that'd be really interesting to find out, you know, how we've just had how you get, you know, communicate the size of space. Well, here's one is like, okay, how do you communicate quite complex scientific um, theories or facts to do with space to a younger audience and it'd be perfect ideas in time for Christmas. And we also have, it's an interview I've I've just recorded actually this afternoon, ever wondered what the space toilet is like on the Dragon spacecraft? Obviously. Mm. Well, we'll have the lowdown. Communal. Well, it's interesting. Gender neutral. We'll have the lowdown from an astronaut who has used it. <laughs> there is the issues about other stuff as well, but I yeah. really wanted oh, yeah, to ask that, about the space it, toilet. That would be like kids, isn't it? It's yeah. like the only thing people want yeah. to know. Well, no one seems to have asked about the toilet on the Dragon. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, well, that's you see, this is the problem when you don't have British members of the media not there on yes. hand to ask <laughs> those sort of questions. <laughs> the questions that matter. Yes, tabloid, tabloidy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll have Super. that next next time. Do get in touch in all the usual or unusual ways. That's Space Boffins. Thanks for listening.